Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And today we've got two audio treats to listen to. The first one comes from Lex Pelger, who interviewed Dr. Kim Hewitt, who talks about her research into the history of psychedelics and their current manifestations. And her most recent academic paper is on psychedelic feminism. Then following Lex's interview with Dr. Hewitt, I'll be back and play a recording of a brief conversation that I had with Dan Abella, who is the producer of a week-long psychedelic event that will take place in New York City at the beginning of next month. So uh, now here's Lex, who will introduce the first part of today's podcast. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Today we get to enjoy an interview from Dr. Kim Hewitt, who is one of my very favorite academics focusing on the questions and the history around the psychedelic experience. Not only an excellent writer of peer-reviewed research papers, I've also gotten a chance to see her in the classroom, and she's a great teacher as well. We'll hear about what brought her to being a professor of history and culture, and her most recent work around psychedelic feminism. By the way, Dr. Hewitt's research involves interviews of people who participate in the world she studies. If you'd like to share your own experience to help her work, you'll be helping out the whole community. To participate, the strict research protocol is that you send her a text message stating your interest in being interviewed, but not stating your name. According to the IRB, she is not allowed to know your name. Her U.S. number is 512-825-4904, and I'll put that number in the episode notes as well. So please participate, but please don't send her your name. Also, we have two announcements from Friends of the Salon. One is from Dr. Bruce Damer, who will be doing a webinar for SAND, which stands for Science and Non-Duality. The first webinar starts on September 30th and spans the next four Sundays. In his free-flowing style, he'll be covering the ignition of the cosmos, the origin of life, our own evolution, and the future of the human civilization. The cost is $100 for four 90-minute sessions. The other announcement comes from Kat Lakey, who also contributes episodes to Salon 2.0. She is helping an ayahuasca center in Peru called Grandma's House, and she put together an Indiegogo campaign for them. She made the video and is working hard to help this retreat center who offers traditional ceremonial work. To learn more about Grandma's House or to donate, please click the link in the episode notes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. And I'm very happy to be here with my friend Kim Hewitt. Hi. Hey. I guess my first question is, did you always know you wanted to be a historian? Oh, my gosh, no. In fact, I don't actually consider myself a historian. <laughs> um, my doctor is in American studies. And so I think of myself as a cultural studies person, which in my mind is much sexier than a historian. Sorry, all the historians out there. Um, yeah, I just heard uh, Samuel Johnson apparently said, God, don't talk to me about Punic Wars. Don't talk to me about history. Give me gossip. That's where the secret is. Well, because gossip is stories. And stories tell us how people live and what they believe in and 
you know, how they structure their lives and, and history, you know, when I teach history, because I do have to teach history, I often tell my students and, you know, most students don't enjoy history. Most people don't. And I really believe it's because it's been taught in a way that wasn't any fun because it's been taught as this timeline. And I tell my students, history is about understanding why things happened the way they did, because they could have happened in a million ways. But why did they happen the way they did happen? And then the rest is all interpretation and telling stories about it. What stories do you want to tell? about those events that happened and how can you support it with evidence? So, you know, that would be my version of what history is. And so when you were younger, do you remember a specific piece of history that that first captured your attention like that? Where it's like, wow, this wasn't written in stone. This could have been anything. Actually, you know, it's interesting. I would say I came to my academic career in two perhaps unusual ways. Um, Actually, I was driving across country when I was maybe 21 and had the good fortune to, oh, you know, have the kinds of adventures you have on road trips, like breaking down and living in somebody's garage for a while while the car gets fixed and meeting a lot of different people. And I also fell in love with the land. You know, Colorado is gorgeous. Utah is gorgeous. California coast is gorgeous. And as I kept meeting people and seeing what amazed me about America, which, you know, it was the people and the immense variety of people and land, I decided to try to figure it out and try to understand it politically, economically, culturally. And that's what brought me to the field of American studies. Um, and then when I got to graduate school, my friend was visiting early, early on when I was in the master's program. I was in graduate school at the University of Texas in Austin. And I was telling her that I had no idea what I would write my master's thesis on. And we had been talking about how Austin seemed to be a mecca of body modification. And kiddingly, I said to her, maybe I'll write it on tattoos. And that's exactly what I did. Because you can do those kinds of things in in cultural studies. Um, You know, why, why was tattooing becoming so popular? Why was body modification and piercing becoming not just so popular, but also incredibly creative in the 90s. And so to me, it's a great example of cultural studies and how you can do something interdisciplinary with cultural studies, combines, you know, some psychology, some anthropology, contemporary ethnography. And I had a blast. And that, that laid a foundation for me, for my kind of lifelong fascination with the mind-body connection and how people express their spirituality through the mind-body connection and that mystery of consciousness. My, my early work in understanding body modification, you know, I came to understand the ways people use pain to alter consciousness. Um, and this whole exploration of non-ordinary consciousness through pain and also rituals and the way people used pain as part of healing rituals. Um, and I would say that, you know, that early work really started laying a foundation for me for my interest in psychedelics and a wider interest in consciousness. Mm-hmm. Harness the needle to get to that same kind of dissociated state somehow. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, and it's kind of subversive and it's kind of fun and it's an exploration and it's, you know, it, it definitely on the fringes. Um, 
although it's a lot more acceptable now. You know, tw- 20 years later, everybody's got a tattoo. What was it like to be working on a project like that uh, in the 90s? Oh, it was fun. Yeah, especially in Austin. Austin was so full of amazing piercing salons and tattooing salons and people really doing cutting edge, you know, body implants and um, very interesting stuff going on then. And so what did the final thesis look like? What were you trying to say about the scene and what you found there? Mm -hmm. So I took a really interdisciplinary approach and kind of folded some psych theory in with theories about initiation rituals and yeah, kind of, I came to this conclusion that many people who are becoming, you know, like practicing body modification, especially the more extreme forms, were really hungry for initiation rituals. And that there was, it seemed to me to be a a signal that there was really something lacking in our society. Um, You know, we had kind of become a really white bread bland society that did not offer people a lot of role models, especially when it came to spirituality um, or integrating their entire selves, right? And in a lot of ways, I feel like the rituals that a lot of these people created about, you know, with body modification were expressing a desire to integrate their whole selves and use their bodies to do that, right? These somatic practices that were, that were bringing them all together. You know, other societies have been doing this forever. You know, other societies have initiation rituals where people get scarred or people get um, tattooed or various piercings as part of a way to almost literally bring a human being into being and into that social culture. And, and in our society, it's a fringe practice because we don't have any socially you know, we don't have any mainstream rituals to do that. What's it like to be to write about this? What's your approach to writing um, these academic papers after talking to so many people? Oh, um, what a nice question. You know, I think of myself as a listener. And, you know, there, there's so many different ways of collecting evidence and creating a story and interpretation. And my favorite way is to listen to people. And um, that, so for example, you know, the current project I'm working on with women in psychedelics, I think of myself as my work is to listen and hear what is being told to me and hear the patterns of what people are saying. Um, and not to judge them, right? It's not that I'm here to say, well, this story is true and that story is true. Oh, what this woman told me is right. It's to hear how do people create the meaning in their experiences? You know, what do they see? How do they interpret what they're doing? What do they think they're doing, for example, when they go to a psychedelic medicine retreat or take plant medicines? Um and so again, I feel like that early work really helped me lay a foundation for that because that's what I did, listening to people about what, what meaning did they give their tattooing and piercing. And now I'm kind of following that same kind of ethnography, I guess, methodology of what stories are being told to me. 
You know, what am I, I just, I, it's almost like I see myself as an antenna. What am I picking up? You know, I'm just here to pick up all the signals and then see what patterns come out of that. Is that what enables you to be teaching in so many different directions is that the patterns keep reoccurring? Because I'm looking here at the list, just a short list of the classes that you've taught from your CV. Madness in American history, history of the body, women's social history, violence in American cinema, which seems especially intriguing, and post-war America, sex, psyche, and politics. I mean, that's such a wide breadth of what makes up this country, uh, along with all the other classes you taught. And so it, so it really becomes a pattern recognition uh, process. Um, I'd like to think of it that way. I would unfortunately say with my teaching, it's fairly fragmented because the what the academy demands of me is not necessarily <laughs> it's not necessarily of my choosing i mean i've developed you know very interesting classes that hopefully fit my interests but um you know they're often um dictated by what the university needs me to teach and fill a certain american history requirement um so yeah, I, I maybe I've yet to see some of those bigger patterns with that. Um, you know, yeah. So you're teaching now at Empire State, and you even have a class on the history of the war on drugs. And I was curious to hear more about what it's like to teach that class in a city that is the cannabis arrest capital uh, of the planet for a while and of the country still, I believe. Oh my gosh, that is one of my favorite classes to teach, uh, especially when I teach it at the Brooklyn unit of Empire State College, because I get such a beautiful variety of students who bring such a lovely variety of viewpoints to the class. I literally get students enrolled in the class who confess that they've been drug dealers. I get ex-offenders enrolled in the class. I had a narcotics detective enrolled in the class once. I have people who work in the substance abuse field. I have people who've been addicts and they all bring this little piece, a little viewpoint to this very broad topic, you know, the war on drugs. What is the role of uh, these supposedly illicit substances in our society and the very different ways people use them and the different attitudes about laws and where, you know, should they be legal? Shouldn't they be legal? Um, how harmful are they? And so it, I, that's one of my favorite classes because there's such great discussion. Um, and, and often it's almost like I don't even have to say anything because, you know, if somebody makes a certain kind of comment about what addiction is, a student who has been addicted to heroin can step up and say, well, let me tell you what it was like for me. And it, so it's, and I think that's what education should be. We all have these amazing experiences to share with each other. And although that's not the only way to learn, it's a really valuable way to learn when it makes it real for students and they get to actually meet somebody who's worked in narcotics for the New York City Police Department and somebody who works in substance abuse rehabilitating people. Wow. And so how does this inform your own work to have all of these great sources that actually are coming to you? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I mean, again, I guess I would say I I really see my one of my abilities is to be able to listen for the whole and synthesize the pieces that are being brought to me 
and realize that not no one of them is the whole story, but to bring them into conversation with each other to me is what a liberal education should be. And also how we all come to a deeper understanding of the world and of each other and what it means to be human. With that listening, how did your interest in the cultural history of LSD come about? A few years into graduate school, um, I experienced what for me was a just a, a life-changing event. Um, my older brother was diagnosed bipolar and experienced a tremendous amount of difficulty for a couple years. He was homeless. He was in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And then he killed himself. And, and for me, this just my whole world changed. You know, I mean, literally my whole world fell apart. And I realized I had to dig a lot deeper into understanding consciousness and specifically what we call normal, right? That he had been diagnosed with a mental illness was one thing. I I wasn't really willing to accept a diagnosis as the final, the final word, Right. I really wanted to understand what does that even mean? Because, you know, and and as I teach a class in this, what we consider mental illness has changed. It's always changing according to cultural values. And as I I spent hours and hours and hours in the library, the University of Texas has a great library, reading everything I could going back decades in mental health journals. And I began to see in the 1950s all these articles about research with LSD and therapy and mental health and research about schizophrenia and LSD. And these ideas just, I became fascinated with this early research. And the more I read, the more I realized, and and this was 20 some years ago, it seemed to me there was an untold story of why did this promising substance that was generating immense amounts of research that seemed to say that LSD-assisted therapy could really help people. Why did that substance become illegal? And that's what I ended up writing my dissertation on. Um, And it's a funny little story. Interesting. So I said that that was about 25 years ago. When I sent it off to a publisher at the time, the response I got back, it went out for peer review And the reviewer, whom I have no idea who it was, it's all blind, basically wrote back and said, this author is biased. She's being too positive. You know, all this can't possibly be true. Where's the dark side? Because we know that psychedelics are very dangerous. So she hasn't done her research. She's only presenting the positive side. And come to find out some 20 some years later, so much of that early research is getting reconfirmed. That positive side I was showing is exactly what's being re-researched today, a lot of it. Um, so it's unfortunate. I feel like even that the bias has now changed, which is wonderful. But unfortunately, that dissertation never got published um, because even at the time, it, I feel like there was a lot of bias against saying, what? These substances aren't. They're just dangerous. They can't possibly be as good as all that research showed. Wow. Never published. What a, yeah. what a shame. Actually, there's another funny story. I don't know if you want to include this in the podcast, but I interviewed for a job at a university in Turkey 
when I first graduated. And they were initially very excited about my research and, and this story of drug policy and LSD. And then a student on their campus got busted for LSD. And they literally called me and they said, we're sorry, we can't, we, we just can't hire you. It would, it really would look bad because we, you know, we just had the student get arrested and I'm sorry, but no, no. So I'm just glad I got a job, you know, thank you Empire State College for hiring me. (laughs) Um, It's, it's fascinating how personal um, life led to this story. And I, and you've mentioned before uh, with your brother, um, taking his own life. That's also something that you've heard about in other uh, luminaries of the psychedelic world. Oh, yeah. I was fascinated when I started reading about Aldous Huxley. And he, he was one of my intellectual heroes. When he was young, I think it was 14, his older brother killed himself. Timothy Leary's first wife killed herself. And I've often wondered, you know... Is this one of those events that kind of pushes so many people toward trying to f- trying to fit themselves into a bigger meaning, like really qu- deeply questioning the meaning of life and why 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 are we here? You know, why do we suffer? Why do some people choose to end their suffering with death? And can psychedelics help us understand any of that? Um, you know, I don't know, but it's I do find it really an interesting coincidence that many of these people experienced the suicide of a loved one. And your work around this was actually, I believe, the first work I ever read from you. Um, your publication, Rehabilitating LSD History in Post-War America, Dilworth Wayne Woolley and the Serotonin Hypothesis, a Mental Illness. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that publication and its importance in neurochemistry and psychedelics? Oh, thank you so much for mentioning that. Um, yeah, I spent some time up at the Rockefeller um, Center Archives in Terrytown, New York, because there was a chemist who had worked there in the 50s and early 60s who, you know, this is before psychotropic drugs were popular, right? We just began to use them in the late 50s in America, and nobody really understood the biochemistry of mental illness. Of course, we still don't. But at the time, we weren't even, we we had many wacky theories about what mental illness was. And Dilworth Wayne Woolley, this incredibly promising chemist, began realizing, simply looking at molecular structures, that the LSD molecule was very similar to the serotonin molecule. And he made that connection, and very early, 1962, I believe it was, well, well, that's when he published a book. He published his first papers in the late 50s, proposed a theory that mental illness was a serotonin dysfunction. And he realized that by looking at the molecule of LSD and saying, wow, well, if that can change somebody's consciousness, this other molecule that looks very similar, serotonin, Maybe that has something to do with mental illness. And it it really was one of the very early biochemical theories about mental illness. And, you know, has gotten very little attention. I mean, you know, I, I was glad to publish a small paper about it because he was quite 
a smart chemist. Um, he died in 1966, and maybe that's why there wasn't much more written about him. But his research definitely sparked some other research. Um, and it's a time period when the field of biochemistry was growing. And of course, out of that comes psychopharmacology. And you can draw a direct line, literally, from his research up through biochemical theories to the development of Prozac. Um, so it's interesting to think of that little role LSD plays in that history of psychopharmacology. Can you tell us more about your new publication, uh, Psychedelic Feminism, A Radical Approach to Psychedelic Consciousness? Question mark. Yeah. Um, several years ago, I began reading some various French feminism theory and publications. <clears throat> and as I read their descriptions of feminism, because it's a very, very different view than American feminism, in the back of my mind, it, it was almost like this little voice just kept saying, wow, they are describing the psychedelic realm. You know, this all-embracing realm, a, a symbolic realm, not a, not based on gender, right? Not based on this is what women are and this is what men are, but a way they describe the world as feminine is everything that's been excluded from our modern society and uh, what what eco-feminists and some of the early feminists, French feminists would call the logic of domination. Um, you know, and instead embracing what would otherwise be labeled irrational, embracing emotional, embracing intuitive, embracing fluidity, embracing the mystery of not knowing. You know, as opposed to a logic of domination in the Western world and the, the modern capitalist world that says, well, we value efficiency and linearity and hierarchy and production. You know, we want an outcome. We want to see that it's rational and empirical. And I, I, I thought about this for a long time before I started writing about it. Um, because I really felt like it spoke to a core of many psychedelic experiences. Um, that, that again, I feel like people are hungering for in their lives. I, I feel that people almost instinctively realize that logic of domination is not nurturing us. And in fact, it is excluding people and it's detrimental. It's fascinating to hear about the, the French ideas on feminism. I was wondering if you could give a, a small summary of the other two major threads of feminism you talk about as uh, uh, in the context of, of uh, a psychedelic feminism, eco-feminism and third wave feminism. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes. And I need to bring that up to answer your question to kind of explain a little bit about how that wraps into psychedelic feminism. Um, so these ideas of the French feminists about the symbolic meanings of feminism knit together with ecofeminism, which talks about our connection with nature as one of the most fundamental 
ways that the logic of domination has separated us, right? That it separated us from nature. And that deep down, if we can reconnect with nature, we're reconnecting with the nature of ourselves and, and literally the wild within us, right? And again, all the stuff that, you know, we've excluded and actually to bring mental illness back in, right? This is almost what's at the core of diagnosis. What is normal? Well, normal is rational. Normal is consensus reality. And if you don't fit in, maybe you're diagnosed schizophrenic. So to get back in touch with a certain wildness, right, that reconnects us to nature and beyond is a core of ecofeminism. Third wave feminism is also just less ideologically rigid than kind of second wave feminism. You know, they're willing to be more fluid. They're willing to be more um, embrace contradictions and embrace multiple identities and make room for questions that can't even really be answered about identity and how, quote, the world should be, right? Maybe there is no one way the world should be. Maybe there are stories people tell. And so third wave feminism also embraces personal narrative as a way to avoid duality, right? Why split the world into here's right, here's wrong, when really all we have are experiences. And I would say this is the core of psychedelic feminism, right? It's it's a term that a woman named Zoe Helen coined, and she founded a an organization called Cosmic Sister to specifically fund women to go to Peru to embark on ayahuasca retreats. And she uses the term psychedelic feminism to talk about how psychedelic work empowers women. And I, I think that's absolutely correct. And I was really interested in expanding that idea. Like, okay, that's great. Now let's talk about how it empowers women. Like, wh- what are women saying about how it empowers them? What are their stories? And so I wanted to draw a thread between these kinds of feminism and really flesh out what psychedelic feminism could be and, and is developing into. So you jumped in and started listening. So I started listening. Um, yeah. And the more I listened, you know, I realized that I do feel like my initial impulse was correct. I mean, I'm not done my research yet, right? It's still evolving. And yet this idea that it's really not gender-based, you know, there, there may be unique ways women work with psychedelic substances and unique pieces, especially if it's an all-woman's retreat, which was where I initially started. And yet, I feel like an awful lot of men are also empowered when they work with psychedelics and experience very similar um, kinds of consciousness and enter into these different ways of being you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with Bill Richards' work. You know, when somebody has an experience of unitive consciousness and feels that interconnection, that's not based in gender. That helps shift a whole worldview. Or as one of the women I interviewed said, 
once you've seen behind the veil and seen that we're all connected, there is no going back. And I feel like that's a very important shift, which is a core of all psychedelic experiences. And I would even say psychedelic feminism is the core of a psychedelic experience, which is not to say that everybody who, you know, works with a psychedelic substance is going to have a certain kind of experience. And yet the possibility exists. Hmm. So it's more the idea that the, the core of psychedelic experience is, is feminine for its openness as an idea, as a feeling archetype. Yes. Openness would be a lovely way to put it, right? It's that openness and fluidity and questioning of many of the values that we've taken for granted. You know, do, does there even have to be a hierarchy? Why? You know, do, do human beings have to dominate nature? Why? You know, do we have to value human life above the environment? If you begin to feel interrelated, I think you begin questioning all of these things that are kind of the machine our society runs on. Um, And so to me, psychedelic feminism is also an intense challenge to the patriarchy. And again, I don't say that as a masculine, you know, it's not about men versus women. It's about a system that has created these divisions and a deep value system that I feel we are beginning to question. Many, I feel many people are beginning to question that value system these days and realize, you know, if we don't value the earth – if we don't value relationships and connections with other human beings and all things, we've gone astray and we're destroying ourselves. It's the one hard part of it for me is it seems like the same kind of hierarchies and patterns build up around the psychedelic world, whether it be in the depths of a jungle or in the, the, um, boudoirs of Seattle or New York and you and you still have this kind of um, ugliness that floats around next to any piece of power and I know <laughs> one, one old tripper said yeah if you take a, if you're an asshole and you take psychedelics it allows you to be a psychedelic asshole right right well and psychedelic substances are very complicated they're not western medicines that solve a certain physiological condition or problem. They're, of course, very related to what is the intention with which they're taken? What is the context? And how does somebody take that experience and put it into practice? Right? It's, um, you know, it's one thing for anybody to say, oh, I had this great psychedelic experience. I I worked with plant medicines and I understood, you know, my place in the cosmos. Okay, cool. And what are you going to do with that? Right? How are you going to, how are you going to work to make the world a better place with that revelation? I I was just reading this morning, this great um, essay by Jay Sevilius in Shakruna.net about social justice. You know, how, how do all these psychedelic experiences translate into social justice, right? How does it help people question what's being left out? Who's being left out? How does it help people re-envision 
beyond themselves, and actually that's maybe my next section of my research, you know, the idea of um, the experience of an expanded self is really common in a psychedelic experience. Okay, how do people put that into practice in their daily lives when they transcend their own individual ego? It might feel great, might not, but what matters is how do they put it into practice the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year to re-envision a world that is interconnected. And for, for me, this is also a spiritual question. Um, and many of the women I've interviewed emphasize that they their work with psychedelics is often within a spiritual context, right? They want to grow personally and they want to grow spiritually. What did you learn as you talked to different women about women-only psychedelic experiences and how they felt differently and how the rituals went and what it was like? Oh my gosh, so many things. Um, yeah, it's it's been fascinating talking to women and then uh, my own participation also in a lot of these retreats and ceremonies. Again, I, you know, it's not wholly different from how men do this and I would love to embark on, you know, how, how in the world can I get a little view of men's retreats? I'd love that. Um, but many women do seem to say, I guess two factors at least seem to be a bit unique that many women feel a need for safe space for women. And, and unfortunately, yes, there are people, whether they be, you know, in the U.S. or in other countries that use the vulnerability of a psychedelic experience and their power as a facilitator to impose themselves on women, right? And there have been cases of sexual abuse and, um, you know, daunting stories. We, we don't really know how widespread it is, but it's – even if it's only once or twice, it's too much. And so when women – are with only other women, they often feel that they are in a safer space um, and so can go deeper into their own work. And, and that's one valuable piece for many women. Secondly, a lot of women and facilitators often talk about a playfulness that women seem to bring to the sphere that when it's only women, they often find it more. The whole retreat is more spontaneous and more fluid and more um, intuitive, actually. You know, they may have a certain agenda laid out, but it just doesn't happen that way. <laughs> you know, it's um, you, you, they've learned to just go with the flow. Um, and again, I don't know how different that is from men only retreats because they're, you know, I don't know if it's a gender-based thing. Um, I just know what people have told me. We're using the terms men and women um, here. And I'm. what about for the queer folks who find themselves somewhere on a, a sliding scale between or on a different scale entirely? Um, how have you mm -hmm. seen those uh, complexities of gender and sexuality embraced by these spots where they're trying to create a safe container, but also I'm sure want to be open and, and open-minded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, another great question. And I really wish there was more attention to this question 
in the psychedelic community and in psychedelic research. Um, I have, unfortunately, I have not interviewed a lot of either non-binary people or, um, you know, most of the people I've interviewed identify as straight women. And I will add straight, white, middle-class women. Um, And I feel like there is so much more work to be done with other, you know, I I think all these identities are fluid and we're beginning to recognize that in society. Um, And I I wish there was more attention paid to how is work being done by other individuals who have other identities. I, I will admit, I don't know a ton about that. I haven't gotten to that yet. I hope I do. I hope I can. Yeah, I just, I fear it's another blind spot out there of the mm-hmm. psychedelic community where we could be more mm-hmm. um, open and do things. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I was I was thinking the other day about William Burroughs' um, Yahe letters when he went to Peru and drank ayahuasca. And he talks about turning into other races and other genders in his ayahuasca experience. And, you know, again, a psychedelic experience has the potential to, to break down all those dualities. And I think it's a rich area that we can all learn a lot from. What did the women say about the lessons they take away and the way they, um, as, as you said earlier, the, the, the Houston Smith quote uh, fits well of, we're not looking for a bright flash of illumination. We're looking for a steady abiding, a steady abiding candle mm-hmm. of light. And so what kind of lessons did you mm-hmm. hear that people really got a chance to bring home and, and fundamentally change how they were living? Mm-hmm. I would say one of the biggest pieces is that so many women through their work with psychedelic substances And it's a whole variety, right? I was really looking at a broad spectrum of ayahuasca, LSD, MDMA, right? I I understand that is in some ways problematic because they they are different substances. And yet a lot of the work is often similar. And a lot of women talk about being empowered as women. Um, And again, I don't think this is necessarily unique to women. I don't think it's a gender thing. And yet I do think it's particularly important for anybody, women or other people who have not felt empowered in their lives, right? That live in a culture that has not handed them, you know, a a high place in the power structure. So I've heard amazing stories. I mean, literally, it, it may sound like a small shift, but women who say, you know, I had this experience and I kept working with it and I felt more confident in myself and my own ability to find answers within myself and listen to my inner voice and my own intuition. And I stopped being so afraid of my ex-husband. I was finally able to stand up to him, you know, maybe about a child custody issue um, or selling the house. And I'm thrilled that I hear these stories of how women put these lessons into practice in their daily lives, that it makes a difference for them in their relationships, at their jobs, with their families, that they feel they can be more authentic and feel bigger 
feel they are, you know, more able to make their own way in the world and create their own realities. It, it's a big thing for a lot of women I speak with. And it is one of the really important points I feel like comes out of the your publication is the, the dearth of representation of women as psychedelic explorers instead of being mm-hmm. you know, the good girls gone bad or trivialize, trivializing it. Um, you know, there just aren't that many great books out there about all of these amazing uh, female writers and artists um, pushing the envelope. Um, mm-hmm. and, and doing research and taking part as healers and pioneers of exploration. Indeed. And in fact, um, if someone was, was listening wanted to learn more, do you have a couple of favorite books um, that you would recommend for people who want to learn more about women in psychedelics and the history? Uh, you know, one book I've loved is called Sisters of the Extreme. Uh, I don't remember the editors offhand, but it's a kind of compendium of women's experiences. Um, not thinking of anything else offhand. Uh there's another book called Daughters of Aquarius, which is about women in the 60s, which, again, you'd think there would be a lot more attention paid to the countercultural women in the 60s, but there's not even that much attention paid to them. You know, it really signals um, how women have, you know, how women's stories have been left out of history. Yeah, um, especially the, the women of the extremes book is just because it's simply the writings from the women is what I feel like makes it so powerful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinkers right. like Ann Shulgin and Kat Harrison, uh, they're better, deeper thinkers on this stuff than almost anybody out there. You know, certainly the people are on stage all the time, you know, and all the, a lot of the researchers doing the mm-hmm. very basic research, you know, that it's not the mm-hmm. right mindset for this. And something about that, not female, but feminine mindset around this. I mean, I, it does make sense what you're saying. I, I feel it. Well, I would also add, you know, I am all for the amazing research that is being done now at Johns Hopkins and NYU. And, you know, it's very important to get empirical evidence to convince the medical establishment and convince the mainstream that these are valuable substances, you know, when used carefully. And yet, I also feel there's a really important voice to be heard in the underground and it's a difficult voice to record because, you know, it's still illegal to work with these substances in the U S um, you know, by nature, you have to be, you know, you have to, I, you know, I had to jump through a lot of hoops to get IRB approval. Of course, I want to maintain privacy and confidentiality for all the women I interview. And yet, it's almost as if those voices from the underground have the freedom to do and say whatever they want because there are no strictures of the institution, right? And, you know, even I have found it a bit frustrating, some of the methodology I've had to stick with in the protocols. You know, I feel that pressure of the patriarchy. Like, here's how you have to do your research in order for it to be considered respectable, Um and that's fine, but but there's a whole world out there in the underground that is experimenting and going into realms and and producing amazing amounts of 
you know, narratives and, and we can learn so much from that. Um, in addition to all the empirical valid institutionally sponsored research. That was one of the last questions I wanted to ask was if we could get you an IRB approval for anything and a nice healthy grant for travel, um, where would you most like to be able to get access to, you know, for your next round of research, what kind of communities and uh, spots would you like to see where people are gathering? Hmm. Um, wow. I think in my wildest dreams, I would go to Mongolia. You know, I would love to see how women shaman in Mongolia are doing their work. Um, because I think also cross-cultural is very important. And there are a lot of questions, certainly, especially uh, working with plant medicines. You know, how are they being adopted and adapted into the U.S.? Um, you know, are they being appropriated? Are they being used respectfully? Are other traditions being viewed respectfully? It's a very important issue. And cross-cultural research is really important. Um, so, yeah, I would love to be able to do more, more traveling outside the U.S. Um, as well as continue looking at the underground in the U.S. Because I feel like there's a ton of valuable, interesting stuff going on here. Yeah, it must be fascinating to see the scenes that you got to see during this research. Um, I, I really appreciate in your article that you included a run-through of what a a true psychedelic feminist uh, retreat looked like and what people went through there. Um, mm -hmm. I was uh, curious about kind of the, the array of psychoactives that were there. What, what did you see the most of in terms of what resonated with the people you were inter interviewing? Hmm. Um, you know, I have a theory that different people really do resonate with different substances, you know, for some people it's mushrooms and they just, they take mushrooms in their home. Um, I mean, I learned, I actually, I learned this early on as I was learning about substances, you know, there are people who the first time they do heroin, they say, I felt right for the first time in my life. I felt right. And clearly there's something about their physiology, their psychology, their spirituality, you know, some, it's mysterious, they have a certain kinship with that substance, right? And I, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm simply saying people often recognize, right? They have a flash of recognition. You know, for some people, it's LSD. For some people, it's um, mushrooms. For some people, it's ecstasy or MDMA. Um, for some people, it's ayahuasca. You know, other people drink ayahuasca, nothing happens. And they say, eh, you know, it's not my thing. It's not my plant to work with. So I, my theory is that it's really different for everybody and people have different resonances. That's a really good word for it. There's a, a theory by the uh, drug writer Victor Pelevin. Not so much a theory, it's just a line he threw out because he's a crazy drug writer, that your first experience of drugs and sex will forever flavor the rest. And mm -hmm. so whenever it goes right that first time, you'll never forget and you always kind of want to repeat that one uh, mm -hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about humans, you know, their neurology does tend to imprint certain things. Although it's a bit mysterious why certain people imprint certain things and other people don't. Um, I, you know, I've been reading a ton about trauma also to understand because a lot of the psychedelic work, people 
find it very valuable for healing trauma, past trauma. And it's super interesting to find that some people can have experiences that made a deep, deep impression on them and other people have similar experiences and it really makes very little impression. So I I feel it's always really important to keep a kind of psychocultural biological model in mind that it's never one factor. It's never just biology. It's never just psychology. It's never just the cultural moment. It's the interplay between all of those things, the dialogue that happens. And we can throw in spirituality also, certainly. And to what you were saying about trauma, it's one of my my fears for the community. And as these events grow and as more underground therapists set up with or without training um, is the screening for trauma, because I do think it's very true. These can be so powerful for trauma, but for very deep trauma, you need someone who knows how to hold that space and mm-hmm. to have someone show up at a ceremony mm-hmm. um, can be can be so damaging. Did you see much in the way of pre-screening and watching for that and trying to make sure everyone's uh, – the, the psychotropic medicines they're already taking were okay and, and that their mental state was okay? Oh, I think you are absolutely right to point out that this is important and – Especially in the underground, I feel some people are more diligent than others. And, you know, another, actually another book that's been very influential for me was Rachel Harris's Listening to Ayahuasca. And she describes some concerns about the work really nicely. You know, it is important to work in a context where certainly the facilitators are experienced, know what they're doing, know the risks involved, because of course there are risks, you know, just, just like there are risks with psychotherapy, just like there are risks with any medical procedure, there are risks with psychedelic work. And those questions about what medications are you on? Can there be interactions? What is your past history of trauma? What are you working with? What's your spiritual practice? That's a really important one. Do you have a practice that can support you as you integrate this work into your life? Do you have a community that can support you as you move forward and try to incorporate this work into your life? Those are really important questions. Yeah, and they they really speak to the need for wise access to these drugs. I, uh, I don't know, do you, I was wondering if you had any theories for if you were put in charge of how these things might be allowed to be distributed, if you'd have any thoughts on the rules and regulations of psychedelics in a sane society, if you were allowed to be put in charge of Huxley's Island, Hmm. if you had any ideas how it would look. Mm -hmm. Um, That is not actually something I've thought through yet, simply because I'm not, I haven't come to my own conclusions yet about any kind of end point. You know, maybe there is an end point. I don't know. I, I'm not even wholly convinced the world's going to continue as it, you know, as it is in the next few decades. And maybe that's okay. Um, I like the idea of uh, an awakening consciousness and people becoming aware of their interconnection and and really the importance of choosing to move through the world from a place of love. And yet, 
I'm one puny little human here. What in the world would make me think I know the answer? I, I don't know. You know, it's... I hope the collective voice can come up with something wise. Excellent answer. And so uh, for the last question, if the world does keep continuing on decently for a couple decades, uh, what strands of research are you most excited about pursuing? Mm -hmm. Well, I want to continue with uh, looking at how women work with psychedelic substances for personal and spiritual growth. I would love to expand that to men so I can see if the how the stories compare. Um, I would like to dig deeper into literally the creation of consciousness and how consciousness is enculturated. Um, you know, again, my interest in individuals changing their worldview and their consciousness is linked to how is that going to play out on a cultural level? Um, I'm all for individuals awakening, and yet I feel it's really important for us to not stop there. I feel it's important for us to start re-envisioning what world do we want to create? What world do we want to live in? Um, so again, I'm not, I don't think I have the answer, but I think it's important for us as a we and as a collaboration to start really carefully considering how do we move forward and re-envision a world in which we're all interconnected and care about each other and the earth. Amen. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and talking about more about your work. Thank you. Yeah, I really wanted to say thank you. It's so nice to have somebody interested and asking great questions and listening. So thank you. All right. Uh, Dr. Kim Hewitt, you can find uh, the work online and we'll put some uh, links to the best stuff that we can in the episode notes. And uh, thank you so much for your work and for talking with us. Yeah, thank you. And now here is some information about an interesting series of psychedelic events in Manhattan that will take place during the first seven days of October 2018. And if you're within driving distance of the city at that time, my guess is that you'll want to attend at least one of these events. Maybe it'll be the one on October 3rd, the Wednesday night session that features Dennis McKenna and Robert Barnhart as speakers. So if you're interested in meeting these two elders, well, that would be a perfect place to do so. Now, here's our conversation about the New York Psychedelic Film and Music Festival. Tell me about the, the, uh, the festival that's about to take place here in New York City. Right. Uh, it's a festival that's going to run for uh, seven days, from Monday through Sunday. And it's, uh, it focuses on uh, films, uh, lectures, um, music. It covers a full gamut of uh, the psychedelic experience, not necessarily only confined to uh, ingestibles, but also uh, films and music, anything that alters one's consciousness. So we're trying to uh, cast a wide net out there to really pick up those who are interested in altering their consciousness, either through music, art, film, or psychedelics. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I, looking at your schedule, I think we should let people know that uh, 
this isn't quite uh, the kind of a schedule like a normal festival where you'd go and camp and spend the whole week there. Uh, you've got this uh, at various times. So this is sort of like a working person's festival that uh, you don't have to quit your job to go to it. Is that right? Exactly. That's how we wanted to set it up, especially if you're in the tri-state area where you have limited time. We structure in such a way that you could actually uh, go and at least attend one of those functions during the week, but not the opening uh, feature documentary shot to all on Monday, or maybe if you have a little more time on Saturday. So we kind of work around people's schedule. Not everybody's got time to take off uh, a whole week or even a few days these days. This time is a valuable commodity. So we work around that. I think that's a really great idea. You know, I just, uh, last weekend, I, I was up in uh, Washington on Orcas Island at their uh, music and arts festival. And, you know, that's, that's, it was an incredible experience. It's really wonderful to, to meet new people. And uh, the nice thing about these festivals, whether it's uh, uh, where you have to go somewhere and camp or whether it can be in the city where you can attend without uh, so much uh, expense and time involvement. Nonetheless, you, you're in an environment with people who kind of, are in the same mind state as you you know you they're like thinking people so it's much easier i think to uh, find the others and strike up a friendship with these things is that what you found sure i mean the the, the whole idea is to uh well new york is not known for psychedelics i mean there are pockets of psychedelic uh uh activity but uh, it's not exactly a psychedelic town. I mean, you're more likely to find people who are into this, maybe in Vermont or Maine or even Milwaukee or even you know, California. So New York is very much a corporate town. But I do think there are uh, cells of, of psychedelia, uh, whether it be in Brooklyn or Manhattan or the Bronx or, or, or Staten Island or even uh, or New Jersey. Well, you know, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm wondering how did you get the courage to do this? I've got several friends who are event producers, and you know, it's a uh, you got to put money up front and all that. Uh, what what caused you to take the plunge on this? Well, you know, I uh, have uh, I met Dennis. Uh, we we, I, we actually, I actually do another festival. We're doing a sort of a science fiction science and science fiction festival called the Philip K. Dick Festival. I've been doing this for the past seven years. Oh. So back in February, I um, had I met Dennis. Uh, we showed one of his documentaries called uh, the, the Shaman and the Scientist. And during the course of our conversation, uh, he suggested that we do a festival here in New York City. Um, I, I, at first, I was very reluctant, thinking of New York, psychedelics. It doesn't, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like a water, oil and water. <laughs> you know, it's, they don't mix too well. But he insisted that there is a very... Uh, this is a strong, nascent community. And um, I thought about it. And then I came across uh, a few books, and uh, including the, um, the newest one, the bestseller. Uh, what do I forget the name of the, uh, the gentleman? The professor from Berkeley, um, who's uh, How to Run, how to, uh, how to Think. Or, this is a new bestseller in uh, psychedelics. And I thought, well, maybe it's worth uh, taking a shot. So... Uh, fortunately, I have the uh, generosity of a lot of these uh, sponsors uh, that are offering their space, such as the Assemblage or uh, the Museum of the Moving Image. So that's really cutting down significantly on any front uh, frontline investment. And, and we ought to put in a, a plug for Herba Mate. I see they're your sponsor, and I use Herba Mate. I think it's great. So. Well, absolutely. So we'll definitely have Herba, uh, Herba Mate uh, a couple of nights, actually. We'll be serving it. 
uh, and hopefully that will be people, get people alert and, and focused on, uh, on the uh, night's activities. Now, from, from the uh, people that listen to my podcast, they will know uh, Dennis McKenna for sure. They may not know about uh, Robert Barnhart. You want to talk about him a little bit? Well, Robert uh, sent me a documentary called uh, A New Understanding, and he was, uh, along with Dennis, uh, is a member of the Hefter Institute, and he was instrumental in descheduling psilocybin uh, from uh, Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, which now it it automatically is open to more uh, uh, medicinal research. I mean, clearly all Schedule 1 substances are regarded as, uh, from the point of view of... uh, I guess the uh, the government there 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 is no research no funding and so right. it's, it's 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 no medicinal value so it's really tough to get uh, approval for that and I also know that uh, I believe Robert Barnhart's also on the board of directors of Maps which will be uh, is interesting that exactly so he's very influential and I will definitely have him in uh, Venice uh, on Thursday at the at the assemblage Thursday October fourth it will be a an evening with Dennis McKenna and Robert Barnhart. And, and let me let me just say a word right now that that uh, I don't know Robert, but I know Dennis. And uh, before and after the presentation, he's such a nice guy. If you've ever wanted to meet one of the McKenna brothers, there's only one left, and this would be a great opportunity if you're anywhere near Manhattan to get in there and see him. And and you know he'd be happy to sit down and talk with you. He's just a, a regular well, guy. Well, he, he, he's one of those people who really walks his talk. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've I ran across people in psychedelics who uh, extol the virtues of D, the DMT experience, but yet I find that they're very much ego-driven and control freaks. So I thought uh, you have to walk your talk in this business, especially in psychedelics. I mean, it's okay if you're an academic or if you're a – a businessman and be ego driven, but if you're trying, you're promoting a uh, an expanded view of consciousness that is not so much subject to left brain uh, limitations. I think you should, you should become well, the person should become a role model, and Dennis is the perfect role model. He's so go- he's such a good guy, very easygoing, very helpful. I mean, if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have we wouldn't be doing this festival. Well, that that should be a great presentation, and that's on uh, th- on Thursday, October fourth, correct? Exactly. And and by the way, if if you can get a, a recording of it, I I'm I'm uh, I'd love to play it here in the salon so uh people will, will uh realize where it came from and maybe by next year too we can uh, get you even a, a larger audience. Uh, Absolutely. I'll definitely want to make sure I have one for uh for uh, for you and for our own um for our own YouTube channel. And and you might want to say a little bit about uh, the music that's going to be uh, on uh, at least three nights, I know. Exactly. So uh, on Tuesday, well, let's start out with Wednesday. Uh, a, a friend of mine reached out to me uh, and told me that uh, he knows Simon Boswell. And for those who are not familiar, they may be familiar with, this, with the films he scored. These are films that are sort of the paramount psychedelic films of the 80s and 90s. These include uh, uh, Santa Sangre by Alejandro Todorovsky, um, uh, Hackers, um, Hardware by Richard Stanley, uh, even films uh, films by uh, Danny Boyle, and even he's even worked for the Vatican, which is... So, uh, Dario Argento. So... Simon is a very, very talented composer, and this is his first U.S. Uh, appearance. Now, 
When, when will he be appearing? He will be appearing at uh, Wednesday at 10 o'clock at the Mercury Lounge. Wednesday, October 3rd at the Mercury Lounge in New York City. And that would be a great place to go find the others, I'll tell you that. Well, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of a kind. And uh, he's coming all the way from England uh, with his band. And it's a, it's a privilege to have him open for us at the festival. You know, I, I also want to uh, compliment you on uh, uh, including documentaries in your, your film uh, listings. That at the uh, Imagine Festival I was just at, the uh, uh, documentary filmmakers that uh, uh, were there and they uh, pre- preview- premiered their, uh, well, it wasn't a premiere, but they showed their new uh, film Metamorphosis. But they're the people that did the documentary called Occupy Love that I think a lot of us have seen that uh, occupied the Occupy, documented the Occupy movement. And so... Uh, I, I think it's really great that we're getting psychedelic uh, filmmakers, uh, not just doing uh, creative and artistic films, but documentaries as well, and that are pulling a lot of our history together. Uh, and you have science fiction as well, right? We have yes, we have science fiction. We have science fiction mostly on a Saturday at the Producers Club. Uh, we have three blocks of uh, no, actually two blocks of science fiction, two two-hour blocks of science fiction, and. Uh, and uh, psychedelic horror, so um, that's also going to be a uh, a big splash. You know, the, the documentary is uh, it figures very prominently in our festival. We're starting out with uh, Luke Cote's uh, documentary called "From Shock to Awe." Um, we just done uh, East Coast premiere, and it basically um, follows to a uh, few. Uh, veterans who have under, who are uh, suffering from PTSD and they go to um, South America. Uh, one of the things I think undergoes uh, ayahuasca, an ayahuasca ceremony. And the, uh, the other, I think it does, uh, I think it's, it works with MDMA. And both of them uh, recovered completely from uh, complex PTSD, which is what they had. You know, uh, at at the uh, festival I just came from, uh, there were a number of military veterans there, and and I really connected with a young man uh, who was an Iraqi war veteran, because I'm a Vietnam veteran, and and, uh, I was able to uh, use some of these medicines to uh, really get back to center line myself, and uh, here's a guy, uh, different generation, different war from the, you know, from Kentucky, and he and I were like, uh, you know, new best friends. And so these, these type of festivals bring people together that are, that you normally wouldn't kind of bump into. And I think it's really important to uh, stretch out a little bit and, and get to, to some of these in-person events. The internet is great. Podcasting's wonderful, but you just can't beat the person to person. They're live. Exactly. In fact, uh, on the subject of veterans, I'm actually doing uh, a stage production of a, of a play called Timothy X's Psychedelic Journey from PTSD to uh, Wellness. And uh, two, one of the actors has actually uh, served two tours of duty at, in Afghanistan. He's a Marine. He's going to be playing one of the roles. And this is going to be a live uh, play, correct? A live play, yes. Wow. And this will, also be, this will also take place at the Producers Club. So one of the actors um, is, uh, is an Afghan... A vet, two tours, Marine. And the other one is, uh, he, although he's not a vet, his father and grandfather uh, were served in, in, the, in, his grandfather in World War II and his father in, I think it was in Iraq, I think, uh, Gulf, 
Gulf War veterans. So uh, I find that. Yeah. How how can people go about uh, finding out where it is and and uh, getting a ticket, things like that? Well, the best way to do this is uh, to go to our website, uh, and the name of the website is Psychedelic Film and Music Festival. And I'll I'll put a link to that in our program notes that that this uh, little conversation appears in too. And some of these events are uh, RSVP. You don't even have to pay. Like the play is actually uh, uh, is RSVP. Uh, some of the events at Cervantes. So we are making it so that the people there is absolutely no excuse for people not to want to attend. Now <laughs> people some people sometimes have limited budgets or so on. We're creating a uh, a structure that anyone should was was interested in the psychedelic uh, world uh, be able to attend with no issues. Yeah, and, and, you know, instead of an airplane ride, it's a subway ride for a lot of people. And, uh, well, we're the New Jersey area and all, you can get in by uh, train. So I think you've got a, the right location. And, you know, I, while you, you say psychedel- uh, New York City isn't real psychedelic, but, of course, that's where Alex and Allison Gray lived in Brooklyn for many, many years. And uh, I've, got, I've got a couple. I've got a friend who lives uh, in, in uh, Manhattan who's a longtime psychedelic. And so... Uh, I will be talking to him and uh, some of my other friends and hope I can uh, get a few of them out there to uh, sort of show the colors for the psychedelic community. Because I think, I think you've got a big underground community there in New York City and in the boroughs that uh, uh, they don't come out too often because, you know, there's uh, always the, the issues. Of what's oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They're there. It's just that they're hard to reach. Right. I mean, they're, uh, they're just um, different boroughs and... Uh, and uh, we, uh, I think, what what the, the real challenge in New York City is is the the skyrocketing real estate, right? Um, and that's uh, that's always a challenge to put together any event in this city because uh, anything you do, it's, it costs a lot of money and it's very hard to get any kind of uh, freebies these days. So, but we but we worked around that. Fortunately, a lot of the people who supported us did give us their space, and we're working with them and making sure that that. Uh, that the events are successful. Well, Dan, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I'm going to get this out on a podcast next Tuesday, uh, okay. and I'm, I'm going to uh, put it on the front end of uh, uh, the first of the Palenque Norte talks from this year, and, and I'm not quite sure that, who that's going to be, but it's going to be whoever had the most number of downloads last year, so I'll, I'll put it on my most popular uh, speaker there. And hopefully uh, we'll get a few more, a few of our fellow saloners from the Psychedelic Salon there, and if you get any uh, any interesting thing recorded that you think would work here in the salon, uh, well, once you finish your event, uh, I'll have you come back here and uh, you can actually uh, introduce the talk if we have one that we can play. That would be a, a lot of fun. Absolutely. I mean, this is this will be in a, uh, it's an event for every taste. I mean, whether from psychedelics to music to art to performance art to surrealism to magical realism, all sorts that attempt to really connect with our with that part of us, we're just wiser and, and smarter. So um, hopefully uh, people will get the message. And then if this takes off, we might be able to uh, do a little tour of the country, uh, like a touring festival kind of. You know, that, so, that, yes. would be, that would be really cool to do that. And, uh, you know, I, I hope you have a very successful event. And uh, I, I look forward to you and I connecting uh, sometime here in the future, not too distant future. Well, thank you, uh, Lorenzo, and uh, I will uh, definitely uh, look forward to sending you that uh, recorded version of Dennis and Robert, and then uh, 
know, this may be the beginning of something really great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Well, I really appreciate your work. It's a, it's a risk, and uh, I, I thank you for doing it. Well, thank you, and uh, let's let, hope we can meet up, meet again, and take it from there. I'm sure we will, and uh, namaste.